Well, millennials seem to take the blame for a lot, for everything from ruining the internet to being overly obsessed. Now experts say, now experts say, now experts say millennials are also to blame for the decline of casual dining venues like Applebee's and Buffalo Wild Wings. Carly Connolly, executive editor at Chowhound, is here with me on set. Carly, why are these restaurants blaming these poor millennials? <laughs> well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, millennials do like cooking at home more than other age groups. So it's pretty easy to see that people are trying to cook at home more and are avoiding these more fast casual, well actually fast casual is very popular for them, but the um, quick service fast food restaurants and then casual dining. So there's a differentiating factor between these three different restaurant groups, um, but they are loving fast casual right now. Okay, give me examples of fast casual. So fast casual would be Shake Shack or Chipotle. Um, okay. Yeah, so basically, you typically higher quality ingredients. Um, you know, it's things that you're people... not being served. You're correct. You're, you're right. ordering your food right. you're in a exactly. line. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You. Well, sometimes they do have runners that will bring the food to your table, but typically, yes, you order at the counter. They bringing you food if that's how they run that business. But the casual restaurants, casual dining like Applebee's, TGI Fridays, they are in a totally different zone where you're sitting down, right. you're getting the food like a normal service restaurant. And just imagine, people are supporting more and more independent restaurants. So why would they go to Applebee's when they can go to their local restaurant? So are any of these restaurants trying to adjust the way that they advertise to try to draw millennials in? Or oh, they absolutely. Just okay. Absolutely, yes. Conspiracy theories are often shared and spread online. Sometimes they are believable and other times just a bit strange. But it all depends on your personal perspective. So let's have a look at today's topic and see what you think. Taylor Swift is a Satanist clone. Okay, so when you first hear about this theory, you may already write it off as being one of those strange theories. But what if I told you there's actually some believable evidence to back it up? This theory suggests that Taylor Swift is the clone of Zena LaVey. Now you may be asking yourself, just who in the world is Zena LaVey? Well, this happens to be Zena LaVey. She's an artist and musician who also happens to be the daughter of the founder of the Church of Satan. She's also a practicing Satanist herself. But I feel like there's something else about her that I'm forgetting to mention. Oh yeah, she looks exactly like Taylor Swift. I've said it once, and I'll say it again. Where lies the strangling fruit that came from the hand of the sinner I shall bring forth the seeds of the dead to share with the worms that gather in the darkness and surround the world with the power of their lives. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you Buffalo Wild Wings Annihilating Screedlers. This is Staff Only, your completely trustworthy and not shady at all studio manager. When I bring you content, I am thriving. This is my swan song. My baby. My wild and elegant offspring who cannot be tamed. Remember, when we are wild, we will not know we are wild. Move your toes in a twinkly manner like a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. We're putting numbers on the board this week. Slam dunk it, mommy. Oh, before I forget, did you catch the latest episode of the DSA podcast? It's exclusive to subscribers on Drip. This is the part where you ask yourself, what am I doing to support the arts? LOL. Anyways, support humor and the abject, if you feel freaking moved about it. Our guest this week is musician, performer, 
and professional muse Jennifer Vanilla. We began the conversation in a slightly unorthodox way, but it will all round out. Don't you stress it. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. So I'm sitting in my kitchen right now. Uh, I've got a portable mic, uh, Jennifer Vanilla. You can hear in the background, that's my phone, linked up to a live Instagram story of her driving her way over here. She tagged me in it, let me know that she was live. So I tuned in, uh, getting ready to greet her. I'm going to plug the phone directly into this to record for the next little bit, uh, and then we'll switch over to a live mic. And if no one's been outside today, it is raining, currently. I'm not sure if it's going to be steady or erratic, but it's happening at this moment. Alright, we're almost back at the place where I turned, well, didn't turn. I'm the woman wearing a sardius cap and eating Marcona almonds out of my pocketbook. Here we are, left on Wyckoff. I told Sean in advance that I was running late, that I do run late. I, I run late the way that some people run hot. I run late. Ugh. Hit a one-way street, not looking good. Hopefully I get there at 2.30 if I'm lucky. I think we can do it. We're just at the park now. Okay. Uh, oh man, this is bad. This is really bad. And I have to go two blocks out of the way. Oh, behind a van, an SUV, and a school bus. At a red light. Doesn't get much worse than this. I am driving after all, folks. And if you're curious technically how I've got that set up, it's a selfie stick leaning into the cup holder of my... 2000 Toyota RAV4. It's a little Y2K buggy. A little rugged city mobile. Did I say it was cute? It's cute. Here I am. Back exactly where I decided that I had made a wrong turn and had to retrace my steps. I'm back. And it was right after all. It was right. Now, I'm going to have to go because I have to look up Sean's exact address and figure out what the cross streets are. Okay. I can legally talk now. I can legally talk. Okay. I will, um, like I said, listen. I know I'm calling it radio, people, but it ain't live. So we're going to have to wait. It comes out on January 21st. That's a week from Sunday. I think we can wait that long. Okay, Jennifer has signed off of Instagram Live. Uh, seems that she's found a parking space near here. Um, I'll be, you know, waiting for the doorbell. And as soon as we hear the door, uh, I'll go grab her. 
Thanks for your uh, patience with this unorthodox uh, beginning to an episode. There she is. Alright, we're going to the door. some tea. I have some tea here. I'm having black. I've got oolong. Uh, yeah, right there. Uh, got oolong. We've got some, some light green tea. on to the nice mics now. Oh, they're beautiful. They're pretty decent. Do you like the red mic covers? I'm obsessed with them. Yeah, it's kind of like a clown type of deal. It really is. Did you do that on purpose? Yeah, the black ones were out of stock when I was ordering, and it offered red, green, blue, or yellow, and I thought red was, you know, sort of looks like a clown nose, but also helps remind people that that's where they're supposed to talk at. A target. Easy to see, you know what I mean? Yeah. That's such a good a good strategy. It's true, they, microphones are traditionally styled to blend in, because they're really just an extension of yourself, not an instrument to be noticed or take up space. Well, you're a performer, so I feel like you know how to use it, but a lot of people don't understand how to speak at Mm. a microphone or into it, or that it doesn't really, you know, when you go back here, it doesn't really do anything. You've got to be kind of not on it, but pretty close. Uh, well, Jennifer Vanilla, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How is your Thank week? Thank you very much, Sean. How is my week? My week is extensive. Uh, peaks and valleys. Yeah, I heard journey. on your... I mean, this is going to come out uh, not till the 21st, but I did hear that on your Instagram story that you are going to be performing in Philly uh, as well as here in New York in the next week or so with Yacht. Is that right? That is right pretty special. Very special. See, I've known Yacht for some years now because a friend of mine used to drum in their live band. And so I've seen them play in New York and mm, probably it was, could have been Portland, Oregon. Is that where they're from? They're from Portland, Oregon. And uh, they that's now live why, in LA. That's why it is so familiar. I'm sorry. Really? Just, yes. It's extremely hot. I'm going to take my sweater off because I'm actually mm. sweating. Um, yes, yes, I had heard about them when I lived there. I think I probably have some mutuals, but I'm I sure don't you personally do. know them. That's pretty cool. How did you hook that up? The tour? Yeah. They just asked me uh, about two weeks ago. The best yes. way for something <laughs> to happen. Um, so 
You know, thanks for inviting me to Jennifer Vanilla Live at the Bar on Tuesday at the Windjammer. That's every first Tuesday of the month, right? Sorry for the interruption. This is Staff on Lee again. I just wanted you to know that Sean left his phone on directly next to a live microphone which picks up a static signal for a second here. This will happen a couple of times throughout what otherwise is a flawless episode. What a goddamn fool. Now, it happens very infrequently and only for moments at a time, but as studio manager, I absolutely had to address this humiliating mistake. Please, for the love of God, forgive us. That's at the correct. Windjammer in Ridgewood. Um, it was quite an experience. Is that, uh, that was my first time going. Now, is the, do you approach a different format every time? Or was what I experienced pretty par for the course? I, and I don't, you know, you don't have to give it away what happened, but I feel like you broadcast them anyways later. So it wouldn't really be revealing anything, would it? No, I'm all for giving it all away. Okay. That was indicative of how the JV Lab 2018 series will be going. Mm -hmm. And that stands for Jennifer Vanilla Live at Bar. JV yes. Lab. Yes. Good name. In 2017, I was calling it Jennifer Vanilla Live at the Bar. And that's what I envisioned it. Originally, I booked it because I wanted to be a sort of night jockey at the bar. I envisioned myself sitting quite literally at the bar with simply a microphone plugged into the the mounted speakers there around the around the room and just chatting up the various people that were sitting at the bar having a drink, um, but doing it on mic. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to engage in intimate conversations, but amplify their voice in some way. So that they were playing over the bar speakers yes. while you were talking with them? I like that. Um, I find a lot of value in dialogue and conversation. And uh, since the inception of Jennifer Vanilla Live at the Bar, I've since become a bartender at the Windjammer one one to two times a week. So you get to do that just, but you're being paid. Yes. That's sort of the bartender's role, right? I'm learning that. <laughs> well, it was slow coming up because Sundays, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. are not the most popular bar time. In fact, it's probably the least popular time to go to a bar in the whole week. Really? I love going to the bar on Sunday afternoon, though. I feel what like time? that's like the, well, I have a... A buddy, Mike Welsh, who, uh, for anybody who's listening, please go see his solo <laughs> show right now at Interstate Projects. It's outstanding. But Mike's a buddy of mine, and our friend Krissa uh, bartends at this bar over on Troutman, and she works the day shift on Sundays. And I love going at like 4 o'clock on a Sunday and having a beer, and then heading home, having some dinner, relaxing, watching Broadchurch on Netflix, you mm, know, whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a great time to go to a bar. Are there not neighborhoody people who like to come in? I feel like that's a great regular time, but maybe it's just slow. Maybe it's there a nightlife are, bar. There are people that like to come in during the day. It's somewhat scarce. And I'm saying we open at noon. Uh -huh. So think about the four. And that's so I work 12 to 8. So the There's time you're thinking of. four hours before I'm even going. Yeah. yeah, you're coming right in the second <laughs> half when it really starts to gear up. I'm usually editing the podcast at noon. Well, why did so you come in for a beer while you're doing <laughs> Do you have internet? Oh, yeah. Is it pretty yes. reliable? Oh, it's great. Because at the last minute, I'm downloading things and moving stuff around. That's the, you know. You'd be the only one besides us using the Wi-Fi. No competition. <laughs> it's not a laptop bar. They're not going to, oh my God, yeah. They're not going to throttle the Wi-Fi and slow me down if I'm trying to rip some YouTube audio. At the Windjammer, we believe in net neutrality. That's wonderful. And, and the freedom of usage of things online. 
Because I don't really check with the copyright stuff beforehand. Oh, I'm uh, not big on copyrights. I'm just waiting to get some letters at my door. We'll see what happens. I just want everyone to know, because I'm not purporting to be anything that I'm not. It's just I haven't perhaps explicitly explained in direct verbal form that, you know, my songs are... Ooh, we're getting some panning. <laughs> I'm not panning. I'm just turning it down. If you want to do some experimental vocal exercises, I'm down. So my songs, I call them JV edits. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, in in the tradition of dance music and DJs, uh, people remix one another's songs or do an, a quote-unquote edit of them. Now, I have a video editing history. I self-taught, and then I wound up becoming an editor at Comedy Central for three years until I quit to become a commercial voiceover artist. In any case, because I'm familiar more with Adobe Premiere and Final Cut, editing things in a linear fashion, um, and really looking at that interface, that's how I think about editing music. So for many of these songs, I've made discoveries of pre-existing instrumental tracks that I fall in love with, and I know it's good because I can't stop dancing to it. And then suddenly I have a melody and lyrics, Mm -hmm. and that's how Jennifer's songs are born. So in terms of copywriting, well, (laughs) one Italian producer, Onirico, whose song Stolen Moments I use for Do It, Stop Procrastinating, parenthetically emphasize your strengths. It's It's a hit. Yeah. People love it. People feel changed. They come up to me after the show. I was also offered a gig with As Seen on TV to help re-release the book Do It by Dr. James R. Sherman, PhD. I'm not familiar. He's very obscure, very hard to find. The book was published in 81 before the internet was really uh, available for consumption. So I'm not sure he's alive at this point. Hmm. In any case, that song, uh, I was contacted by an Italian man named Emanuele, Emanuele, and he happens to be Onirico, and he discovered Do It and was just tickled pink. Really? Mm-hmm. And now we're pen pals. <laughs> he loves the movies. That's fantastic. Um, so the way that you just described editing, um, looking at something, seeing all of the bars and the chunks and the different things, is it a pretty visual process then, even though you're working with sound? The way that you're arranging things? Well, I definitely look at the track. I mean, they're different in, I I edit in Logic, which is basically, you know, the audio version of Premiere. It's laid out in a very, very similar way. Mm -hmm. Um, With Ableton, for example, I just haven't been able to stand being in Ableton because you can, there is a special view that's more linear, Mm -hmm. like a sequence, but it's not like the typical one. It's not the default. And so... And I feel this pressure in myself to learn Ableton the traditional way, the way it's meant to, in these sort of like modular, like MIDI blocks and stuff. And okay. it doesn't translate to me. Yeah, yeah. No, I so. understand. I have a similar um, difficulty with it because of that. I mm. think I very much need things to be these sort of longer chunks that happen in a very specific fashion. Then I kind of blur my eyes a little bit and look at it. And then you can see if things are too heavy in some area or too little. Mm. And I know that... It's not a one-to-one ratio, but there's something about the structure of it, looking at it, that I think is uh, pleasing and helps me kind of organize my thoughts as opposed to things being in a a different type of timeline. Um, Well, so you started with this vision that you would be a night jockey at the bar 
And in a way, the experience that I had on Tuesday wasn't totally dissimilar from that. It was just in a different setting. It was in what, um, you know, I'm not familiar with the history of the Windjammer, but I loved that backspace. It felt like maybe it was a space that would be rented out for parties and things like that. And so there wasn't a, yeah, okay. And there wasn't like a traditional stage and you had the room set up in this large circle. And who was the person who uh, was sort of assisting you and kind of leading the conversation? She was leading the conversation. Her name was Alexandra Schmidt, mm. unlicensed social psychologist. Mm. USS. USP. <laughs> Damn it. USP. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and who else was in who else was involved that night formally? We've got Alex Tatarski, mm -hmm. whose interview with you I listened to yesterday. She's lovely. I know. I know. I saw her um I always put the words in the wrong order. I believe it's Americana Psychobabble mm -hmm. and not Psychobabble Americana. I always want to say it the oh. other way, but Americana Psychobabble. Like Americana Eaching Apple Pie. Have you seen that video? <laughs> no. Carly Schneeman. Oh. I saw her do a performative. Well, it was more of a lecture about performative lectures. Interesting. Yes. How meta. I know. Um, but yeah, I got an email. This was quite some time ago from Alex just inviting me to come to the brick to see that performance i ah, think yes. we must have met years ago um she said that she had come to something when i was working at bhqfu and so we had met there but it had been years since we'd talked to one another and she said please come by this thing and i looked it up and i read the description and i just thought well this sounds like it's pretty much up my alley and then mm. went to the show and was just like floored i mean she's an incredible performer yeah. I, I was i can't do that type of stuff like mm -hmm. that um I don't even know how to describe it, but she was wonderful. So I was really excited to see that she was going to be on your show. Um, and then who, there were a couple other folks. Yep. Yeah, so I'll, I was going to say, I'll go through the circle, but we're already out of order. So <laughs> Don Lombardi mm -hmm. playing Suzanne. Oh, the teacher from Ohio. Cassidetti's, Cassettis, Cassidis. Yeah. I think Suzanne there was an, I think there was an Cassidis? extra. Yeah. There was an extra syllable in there. Don Lombardi is the star of the Don Lombardi show. Okay. A public access show that basically uh, streams live on Instagram and, and is archived and organized on YouTube and DonLombardi.com. I met her on Instagram uh, and then I asked her to do my show. And she came with Suzanne, who was a third and fourth grade advanced school teacher, and mm -hmm. she taught us a, a playground dance and chant game called Pete. Pizza, pizza, daddy. Mm -hmm. With the dance <laughs> really moves. Really fun. Yes, I remember Transportive. that. Transportive. Uh, Dawn, I'm going to have to check, uh, check Dawn out. That mm -hmm. was fantastic. Then we have Linda Felcher, Mike, Michael, Guardiola. And in fact, you might be happy to know that I met, I first became acquainted with Michael at a BHFQU. BHQFU. I do this every time. It's okay. BH. I don't work there anymore. I don't care. <laughs> Say it however you want. HQF. B H Q F U. B H Q F U. So random. It sounds like one. It sounds like the password you get on the back of your modem. Mm, yes. Like a random assortment of, of letters that don't make any sense yes. following one another. It's yes, so it hard. Bruce Quality Foundation University. And that's where you met Michael. At a performance art class. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, was Michael in Erase the Time? Yes, he was. Yes, I thought I recognized Michael on. from that music video. Yes. And he's wearing the primary shirt for that episode. 
It says, Dance Like Jennifer's Watching. It's a vibrant turquoise t-shirt that I made for a friend in Canada. But upon realizing how Much prohibitively expensive yeah. it is, I gave it to another friend. Yeah, I have uh, this. Well, I gave you one. I gave you Anna for Bregazine. I started the other night. eating it on the train last night. She's unreal. Um, but so I sell those zines at, you know, like a book fair for five bucks and then online for 10. Um, and I have to charge like $20 to ship to Canada. And I have gotten messages from time to time. They're like, you know, why do you charge this much? And well, part of it is it costs that much if you want tracking and you want to make sure that it doesn't take three months to get there. Um, and also because I hope it deters people from just ordering it in the first place. Cause I don't want to wait in line at the Bushwick post office and fill out a customs form and hand it in in person. It's a tariff it's an for your labor. insane experience. It, well, I never understood when I was younger. I was like, well, what is shipping and handling? Like what is handling? And now I understand shipping these things that handling is really nothing. If it's a domestic thing, especially if you're, sh I'm, I'm not shipping a lot of stuff, but if you are, you just, you have a little printer at home and you print your postage and you drop it in the box and all these things like that. Very easy. If you're shipping something internationally and you're not a big company. Holy shit. You have to go and stand in line at the post office and physically give it to the person and then fill out this little carbon copy paper thing. I have done that as well. I shipped uh, an Ava Luna um, CD to Germany. But, Sean, I think that there's a bit of joy in the post office, don't you think? But maybe a bit. It's like it Times Square. It would be about the maximum amount I would allow a right. bit. <laughs> maximum amount of bit. There's. I've been to some wonderful post offices, so I, I was just in Tucson. Mm -hmm. um, my girlfriend Claire is from Tucson, and we, we go there around Christmas time. And we often... You know, it's it's Christmas time with the family and things like that. And so sometimes you get some gifts and you didn't, you know, account for that in your bag. Mm. So oftentimes it's cheaper to just ship stuff flat rate. Um, and we had, you can actually see the boxes right oh, there. Fresh. We had uh, a large number of books that we had acquired uh, as well as rocks. You know, we're in the Southwest. <gasps> books so books and rocks. Um, and that would have really weighed a bag down. But we shipped it through the Tucson post office. And let me tell you, five stars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The one on, I think it's on 6th, I believe, is the street in Tucson. Fantastic. Went in there. One person in front of us. The guy gave us tape to tape the mm. box shut, which they do not Free do here. Free accessories. Yeah. I love it. They had every one of the flat rate boxes and envelopes fully stocked. Anything that you needed <gasps> to use. Of. Yeah. And we went right up. He took care of it, shipped it right out. It, it was wonderful. And I swear the receipt was physically shorter. It wasn't as long, and I thought that was a nice touch. That must be like a sort of a Tucson type of thing. That sounds uh, above and beyond. You're reminding me of the small town post office I went to in western Massachusetts. It's where my dad picks up his mail because it's such a tiny town. They don't get mail delivered really to their doors. It has to go to the post office. And does only. he pick it up in like a big box like once in a while? No, he, has, he doesn't get that much mail. Well, I don't know. My parents just sent Did me a they? photo. My parents were gone for three weeks around the oh. holidays and they had their mail held at the post office. And, you know, they're, they're boomers. They're probably, yeah. they probably get catalogs and things that I don't get. And they sent uh, me and my sisters a photo of their mail that they picked up and it was in literally a recycling bin. There was so much mail from three weeks that they had to bring it home in a recycling bin. And I just thought, what, how, why are you getting this much mail? I get, they've lived at the same address for like 
almost 40 years, right. I suppose. That's probably why. But you would think that that wouldn't be the case. I don't it know. It reminds me of those performance art experiences uh, or uh, pieces where someone will keep every piece of trash that they produce hmm. on their person for an entire year. On their person. It's like, what if in this world <laughs> Wait, now... that type of... Has more than one person has done this? My first roommate in New York City told me that someone did that at in her class at we Wesleyan. Wesleyan. And I've just of always course. assumed that there is like one of those in, you know, every four years or so at a small liberal arts school. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if any of the, I'm going to ask, I have a few friends who went to Wesleyan. I'm going to ask them if they met the trash keeper. <laughs> yes, the trash keeper. But imagine, what if you had to wear all of your emails? You know, that'll stop people from, you know, 21,160 unread letters in their inbox. I who, you know when I mean? people post screen grabs of that, I can't deal with it. Yeah. It you does, let you that wretch? many, it makes me physically uncomfortable. I get the idea of having, just delete your email account. Why would you keep that? I need to know, like when I look and be like, oh, shoot, I have like 10 emails that I like need to get to. That's why I marked them as unread. Um, or just unsubscribe from things. Right. I've been very proactive about that leading up to 2018. I think I've cleaned house. How about you? Uh, I'm working with, I want to say there are about 11 that I haven't read. Oh. Um, Today or? Total. Since? I usually keep it under 20. I try to keep it under 20 unread. And most of the ones, I'd say half of the ones that are unread are orders for zines. Mm. And that's because I usually wait like two weeks, then I send them all at once because I only want to take care of it one time. That is so I leave them unread so that info. it keeps bugging me, yep. you know, and says you need to send this. Right. And then so. when I do it, I just look at my unread mail and and uh, print out those addresses. Now that's an interesting method. I keep it at an obsessive zero. Hmm. You know. I would love to. When I get to inbox zero, I feel great. This is bringing me to two important points. Okay. One is. I love emailing. Yeah. Number two, I'm very impressed with people who are minimal. I'm impressed with minimalism. Minimalism. And I think okay. that you and Claire are somewhat minimalist, and I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, all that stuff on the counter, much of it is usually on the corner of this table. I move mm. it to record. So even more minimalist. Yeah. Than and so we've it also appears. we've also just come back from a trip, so there's still some things that need to be put away. But generally, it's pretty. You know, we keep it pretty tidy. And also having people over regularly to record motivates me to make sure that everything is relatively clean. I hear that. I don't want to bring somebody in and have it be insane. Right. I have a, f I have a paranoia that when people come to my house, they might think that I'm insane. Yeah. And that is what motivates me mostly to I organize. Yeah, I don't want people to think that either. And also, this is this seems so goofy, but I want, I want when somebody comes in and I'm going to talk to them on the mics... I want them to feel like relaxed, you know, like they're not anxious or like looking around and there's something that's going to tip over or that there's everything is kind of crazy or something like that. You know, I want it to be a little, a little Zen. I think Brett Davis said that my house was very Zen, which made me very happy. I texted Claire and she was like, really? Did he really say that? I was like, yes. Yes, he did. It's like the holy grail of compliments. Yeah. And today's really nice too, because um, the day that we're recording this as, and, and I was recording direct from the phone from your Instagram feed into my you mic. Were? Yeah, so I got a little you're, bit of I got a little bit of that going. And you were narrating the rain. And so right now, if you look out the window, it's actually overcast, which is really quite lovely for this time of day. I mean, I know it's going to be dark in about an hour and 5 minutes, but it's 
It's nice not to have the blinding light coming in, I think. Oh, yes. I mean, I don't know what it's like. I have nothing to compare it to on a sunny day, but I'm quite enjoying the environment. Well, sometimes I sit across from like where you're sitting right now. So your back is to that window. Sometimes it's just like the person is uh, basically a silhouette because it's so bright behind them. If I do it later in the day, now, this time of year, not not much of a problem, but I know that it's going to get worse as the spring comes because ah, it's yes. going to be brighter longer and it's going to be crazy. You're complaining about the sun, Sean. I, <laughs> yeah, well, I lived in Oregon for a long time before I moved here. So, and before that I'd lived in Arizona. So I really took a liking to, um, the kind of gray. And, Is Arizona gray? I think of it as desert. Hot. No, Arizona was very bright. But when I moved to Oregon, I was I really happy because all of a sudden it just switched from constant sunshine to, um, just a little bit, you know, I thought it was kind of dreamy. I think a lot of people understandably had seasonal affective disorder. Mm. Um, it was not sunny for probably six months of the year. Um, just kind of looked like this all the time throughout the winter. It doesn't really snow, but definitely like a vibe, you know? Right. I thought it was, really, I thought it was comforting. vibe. Yeah, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, but I could understand how if you came from uh, living your entire life in California and showed up in Oregon, your first winter might be a little, a little intense. Right. Well, that's the polarity of being in the hot desert sun with no sanctuary from that. And then Portland, of course, you were suffering from a bit of, you know, PTSD from the extreme. Yeah, yeah. You I, know, maybe some, maybe still working through some anger, angst around that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had my first semester in school, I moved to Portland to go to school. I had this uh, teacher named Anne-Marie Oliver. Um, and she had this, Anne-Marie is a, a brilliant woman. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't know besides an educator she's a writer I wouldn't know what to call her besides maybe like a a cultural philosopher maybe very very wow. smart like very 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 smart but uh it was one of the first days of class and she was asking you know because we were graduate students and so most of us were from outside the area you know where's everybody from and I told her that I had moved from um, Tempe, Arizona, which is part mm. of Phoenix. Oh my and, god I've been to Tempe. And she had this weird way of talking that was sort of like you know, like mid-Atlantic and, you know, mm. kind of like old timey. And she said, Mr. Connie, the sun in Phoenix is oppressive. I have no other word for it than oppressive. And it hadn't occurred to me when I lived there. And then ever since then, I've been like, it was oppressive. It's that incredibly was, impressive. It was insane. Oppressive. oppressive. Yeah. It's, impressive. I mean, it's I impressive mean as well. I didn't mean to say impressive. It just came out. <laughs> but um, I meant to say oppressive and I couldn't agree more. I had a very dystopian experience when I was there. What did, what did you go there for? Um, my band Ava Luna was performing. We mm -hmm. were on tour. Where did you play? Do you remember? Mm. Of course not. <laughs> what I do remember is that I remember two things. One is that we realized we'd left the cinder block that the drummer uses to weigh down his, his kick drum because mm -hmm. he plays pretty hard back in Richmond, Virginia. And I so, also lived in Richmond, Virginia. Oh, one of my other favorite places. Um, and so outside the venue, we found the curved corner of a curb broken off. A giant chunk of it was right at that curve. It was very heavy, heavier than a cinder block, probably as heavy as four, so condensed. True rock, city mm -hmm. rock. And we lugged it in, and that we wound up taking that on tour with us, this piece of sidewalk from Tempe. We also made a shaker, because we'd forgotten our shaker in another place, out of uh, small pebbles from, and gravel outside the venue in an empty Poland Springs water bottle. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yes. Very lovely. But we went to the... It wasn't Tempe, but 
Scottsdale. Scottsdale. We went to the family circus diner. It was awful. Wait, like the comic? Yes. Did you know that there's a place no. where the family circus, when they go to a restaurant, it's there? It's that diner. No, I, I know that um, Scottsdale, which is sort of Tempe's hat, <laughs> um, is very strange. It, it's, a, it's a weird place. And the only time that I've ever heard it really mentioned in pop culture was the movie Little Miss Sunshine. Mm. The dad is obsessed with Greg Kinnear, I believe is the actor. And, and he wants to take a job or something in Scottsdale. He keeps talking about Scottsdale. And I was just like, I've never heard anybody mention that seriously without making a joke about it. But That's funny. I mean, it's a picture of a place. It's the most artificial. It was built in the 50s, yeah. right? Did you go to it's downtown? It's not for human survival. Yeah. Did you go to the part with all the funny little like hokey galleries with the knockoff? like Native American art and stuff. Ooh, didn't see that. Well, there's an area of Scottsdale, and I could be misremembering this, but I'm remembering it the way that I want to, which is that there's this sort of trading post art gallery called Gilbert Ortega. And within, I want to say like eight city blocks, like eight square city blocks in downtown Scottsdale, there are like four of them. It's the same store and it carries all the same things, but they're, they're on different corners to make sure that you can't miss Gilbert Ortega. But all of those places look so similar because everything is just like a rusted metal cut out of a coca pelli, um, some cowboy paintings and a few other things that you have no idea what, I mean, each store is a facsimile of the one before it, so it doesn't matter if it's the same company or not. And I think they just bank on that, that people will perhaps shop at Gilbert Ortega twice in one day, just because the layout is slightly different. Ugh. It's like, uh... A gallery franchise. Mm -hmm. They sort but of they move only... themselves into the town bodega, except they're an art gallery. <laughs> they've only moved, yeah, they've only moved like six hundred feet apart, though. <laughs> um, well, getting back to the show and uh, right. JV Lab, could you talk a little bit about what the experience that you're trying to bring for people is for folks who haven't had a chance to go yet? Like, uh, you know, I said I myself, this was my first time, and. What can people expect if they come to future ones and how do they shift around? Mm. Well, I'd be curious to hear about what your experience of, of what you saw was. Ooh, throwing it back to me. Um, well, it was sort of funny. I talked about, I think I mentioned, um, in an email to you yesterday that, uh, I was on, uh, this artist, Lisa Levy has a show on free radio, Brooklyn or radio free Brooklyn. I, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but, um, I did her show and her show is sort of a, she is a, an unlicensed psychotherapist mm -hmm. and that she's been doing that for years. And so she has people on primarily comedians and artists, and it's kind of a mixture of an interview and a therapy session type of deal. Um, I which, can't think of anything better, which was yesterday. And then I went to the premise for the JV lab on Tuesday had been that it was a group therapy session. And then I ended up leaving a little bit after 11. I'm not sure how late it went, but that's because I had real therapy <laughs> at eight o'clock in the morning on Wednesday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I had, you know, experiences on a spectrum of therapeutic kind of arts. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Did Lisa Levy have any comment or read on why you schedule your therapy sessions at eight in the morning? She didn't, but many people have uh, brought that up. <clears throat> um, they used to be at 11. And to be quite honest with you, at my old job, uh, the job was part of the reason that I was going to therapy. Mm. Um, 
I would, it was scheduled at 11. That was when she had an opening when I first started seeing her. And I, it was bi-weekly because that's all that I could afford. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would, because they were bi-weekly, I just sort of made up excuses for why I was late on the days that I was late. And I was just like, oh, I have to go do this this morning. Or I have a meeting here because nobody really paid attention to anything. And I could be like, oh, I have to meet with this person in the city. And they'd be like, of course he does. Um, So I would go, but I wouldn't get to work until, you know, like one o'clock or something Mm. like that. Um, And one week, and then one week we met and she said, you know, I I don't have an 11 o'clock in two weeks because for some reason she had to leave or something like that. But she's like, but I could do early. And I was like, well, what is early? And she said eight. And I thought, Uh. well... That seems pretty brutal, but, you know, uh, that's great if you're working because you, you go. It's like, and I always wonder, you know, people go to the gym at like 7 in the morning. I was like, what are you talking about? But then I was like, well, I'll go do therapy at 8 and then get to work. And then nobody else came in until 10. So I would, you know, have like almost an hour of just kind of chill time before anybody else got there. It was actually really nice. And then uh, when that job ended, I just never changed the time, even though she's offered to a couple times and there's something about it that is probably self-punishing that it's that early. I mean, I have it's in Dumbo, which means mm. I have to go into the city and come back. Mm-hmm. So it takes me... I mean, I have to get up at like 6 o'clock in the morning. You know um, you love it. I do, and, and there's a weird... I, I think the other thing, too, though, is that it's much quieter at that time of day um, and makes the commute there really kind of... I don't even know what, not contemplative, but it gives me a chance to wake up and kind of be in a more uh, kind of quieter environment. People just aren't as nuts on the train at seven o'clock in the morning as they are at like nine. The morning subway is very gentle. Everyone at 8 a.m., everyone's, you know, waking up, starting their day. Yeah. And they kind of, you know, they're, they're being very... I, I think because they're they're weak, like, I, like we in this house we call it jelly bones. You know, when you wake up and you just mm. you can't really make a fist yet. You can't, and even sometimes when you leave the house, you're just not re- like if someone wanted to fight you, you would just get you'd get your ass handed to you. Yeah. Um, you'd have no defenses. But I feel like that's sort of where people are, and so it's a little bit calmer. And then when I get done, it's eight forty-five or nine in the morning, and people are still pretty calm. Yeah, and then I come home. Or go do something else. Sounds like a good day. And I like that you make sure that you're well rested for it. I try to, yeah. Um, And also, you know, I mean, I was at a bar, so I was just like, man, I've had a few beers. Like, I I should really go home. Because it was also, you know, first therapy after the holidays. You know, first therapy of 2018. Oh, yeah. So you started biweekly two weeks in. Yeah. So Mm. I had to kind of, you know, I felt like I really needed to be there for it. And I take it um, pretty seriously. I'm (laughs) laughing, but I do. (laughs) That's great. That's great. I don't allow myself as much time uh, before to get settled before I begin therapy. And I always know that it would be a great thing. I'm I'm addicted to meaning to start meditating. Mm, Yes, me too. Years. It's an epidemic. I've been thinking about it for years. Mm -hmm. Might get into TM. It's been in the back of my head. (laughs) And you know what part of the reason that I don't is? You're cheap. 
cheap and uh well i bet i could just watch a youtube video that would tell me how they to do hold that that's locked down very tightly tm really transcendental meditation because that's the one where you get your mantra you have to pay big oh, bucks for that okay that's it's why like, there's not that much information because david lynch has a hold on oh, it dl well besides david lynch though the vast majority of celebs who i hear practice transcendental mm -hmm. meditation then i sort of am like oh, i don't need to do that if that person likes it it's like the new kabbalah well it's usually just somebody that i'm like you don't seem very transcendental or meditative, so maybe this is bullshit. Maybe you need to quit judging yeah. and start I, meditating. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the reason that we're talking about this is because the show was sort of this group therapy session. Right. Um, which my entire impression of group therapy is based entirely on having seen it in movies and I felt like this was a little bit of like a, a little play on that because I, I don't I don't actually know what group therapy is like. I mean, I understand that they're like there's therapy for grieving. Um, I suppose Alcoholics Anonymous is probably mm -hmm. a type of group therapy, but I haven't been in a situation like that. And even though I was at this one that was sort of, um, you know, a little bit cheeky and fun about it, I realized that I would not benefit from group therapy. Mm. Because I would just want to talk the whole time. Ah, uh, yes. I wouldn't be able to. And also I would just be like, oh my God, they're saying the same thing they did last time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably, well, that's why I pay a therapist. Right. Because I say the same thing all the time. And then they, but, you know, we have a contractual agreement that she has to listen to me. Right. I guess there's different reasons for therapies. I think some group therapy is also supplemented with individual sessions. Okay. So that you can get both. Uh, I myself have also never been to group therapy, except for this one time at group Jennifer. But um, Alex Schmidt has, and that's part of where, I mean, that's the reason why she facilitated the, sh the event, the show, the experience. She was a very good MC for it, too. Yes. If, and I don't know if that's, that might be a disrespectful word to use. No, it's <laughs> not, really. I mean, she was definitely a master of, of the ceremony. It was definitely a ceremony of sorts. Mm -hmm. She was drawing from her own personal experience and some other, like, pop cultural references. And, um, I mean, yeah, that was a particularly unique uh, Jennifer Vanilla experience, for me, um, because um, the general principle is that I am and do everything. Mm -hmm. And so to orchestrate a show, produce, direct, promote, perform, help write, collaborate with, um, delegate. <clears throat> uh, administer. Administer, thank mm -hmm. you. All of the above. Um, but then not be leading in the final moment of the entire process. The performance itself was quite new for me. Yeah. And that is what 2018 is all about, Sean. Interesting. It's a dismantling of the Jennifer Archie to a degree. Okay. Um, so will you be taking on more of a producer's role is that a, I, that's such a that term has such a bad association with it i think but i found out that it's now the new catch-all it's like a favor that like curator you can just give someone if they you know uh like a friend of mine oh, was saying uh like in a film he, his yeah. a friend making a film asked if he could borrow um this person's labs their lavalier mics for the production 
And he said, sure. He said, oh, cool, great. I'll give you a producer's credit. That's wonderful. So that's not what I mean when I say producer. I know. <laughs> well, I think that's the that's the troubling thing. It's funny when I was talking to Lisa on her show, mm -hmm. I was talking about an interview that I'd done with Anna Fabrega a while mm -hmm. ago. And in it, um, I can't remember how we got to it, but Anna either during the interview or afterwards told me that she thought of me as a comedy administrator. Mm, and I liked I like that, that, actually. I think the it's really... I have worked as an art administrator many times, and I really like to make fun of art administrators. I think it's like one of the nerdy, like it's such a specific type of person who like wants to do arts administration that it makes me laugh. And um, I have a knack for some of it, and I, I genuinely enjoy like organizing stuff. Um, but it was always like administrator outside of arts administrator sounds like someone who gives you um, like a dose of a drug. The person who administers something, right. you know, um, but comedy administrator sounded kind of fun. And I was like, I kind of like that role. And then I as like I was that. thinking about it, I was like, I guess that really is if you shake off all of the negative connotations with producer, that's kind of what a producer does. You make sure something happens and you do what you described. You promote it, you organize it, you're delegating things, you're making sure that everything happens. And then when it's go time, you kind of have to be a little bit of a shadow during it, mm. which is probably tough if your name is on the bill. Correct. If it's your show. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm discovering how hard it is to do it all. <laughs> but it's a lifelong goal of mine, you know, but I feel like it's, um, you know, in group Jennifer, we talked about this came up more in the rehearsal that we had a rigorous rehearsal the night before the show, in which we went through the entire process of group Jennifering, um, got to some pretty nitty gritty issues. Um, and one of them was the concept of not being special, mm -hmm. which I have a really hard time wrapping my head around, Sean. Yeah, I think that came up in the thing too. Was Did asking it? All if right. I believe Alex, uh, Alex was asked if she felt special she was quick to say no if i remember correctly <laughs> mm. but then alex schmidt unlicensed social psychologist pointed out that the level at which she was sort of um uh, just very attached to a, a sort of worry and paranoia about how she was being perceived and what other people's experience of her in the room was that she was in fact uh, living her life as if she were special. Thinking that, yeah. I guess it, special is a spectrum. Well, special doesn't necessarily imply that you think the world of yourself. No, no. It's that it's that you are more important. Maybe we talked about this in the show too. That there's a there's a hierarchy. It's like, do you think you're especially good, especially bad? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that there is a degree to which somebody can think that they're special, but still be self-deprecating. Right. And being assume... self-deprecating is performing a spe the idea of specialness. Yeah. And to be to think that everyone hates you assumes that everyone, A, knows who you are, B, thinks about you. Hmm. And C, C has, an opinion. has an opinion and sort of organizes their like emotional well-being and... Uh, mentality around like your actions and your presence right and he is like putting forth the energy to like constantly be thinking something about you yeah do you think that somebody who thinks that nobody even cares about them thinks that they're special is that a type of special 
Yes, it it's, is. It's a fear that they're not special enough, so they're still they prioritizing a, the concept of of specialness. They think they have a bit of it, but they haven't gotten. They want more. Maybe. Yeah. Huh. There. I mean, there could be a bitterness around that, or they might. Yeah, someone who truly just doesn't think that they're special, but that they're special in that that everyone else is special, but them. Mm-hmm. That makes you're treating yourself specially. Yeah. Then everyone else is normal. I think that that's the self isolation tendency that many of us have. Being like. I'm not like them. Uh-huh. I'm special. Yeah. And that might be, you know, not as good as them or better than them or not as good. And so you decide that, you know, there's a reason why you're special. It's a, That's the defensive, defensive nerd. You know? Yeah, yeah. And the resentment that comes with it is usually rooted in thinking that your specialness maybe just isn't recognized by right. everyone else who is special. Right. It's like either we're all special or we're not. Or none of us are special. Or no one is, yeah. And and so they mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, the factor must be removed. Is, okay, so I, I was looking at um, some of your music online, mm-hmm. and I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that, and, and I'm totally paraphrasing here, but the sort of, the album, like you have, a, you have an album on Bandcamp, um, and it's called This Is Jennifer, right? And yeah. it sort of has, I wouldn't call it like a, by any stretch of the imagination, I wouldn't call it like a manifesto or a mission statement, but it has a little description that kind of says what the songs can help do for you. Um, and could you talk a little bit about that? Is your mission through your music and performance to give people a sense of specialness or is it unrelated? And I'm just making the connection because that's where we've been going with the conversation. Oh, I'd say it's related. Mm-hmm. I think that Alex touched on a very... Uh, active cable, active wire, when she brought up specialness at the show. Um, I am a embodied muse, and I'm the favorite parts. I'm everyone's favorite parts of everyone, and I'm everyone's well, I'm I'm calling myself right now a culturally absorbent prototype um, and fantasy vessel, entrepreneurial fantasy vessel. Um, I'm aspirational. I'm what we want to be. I'm the best parts of you and I'm the best parts of me. Hmm. And so does that entail a conscious absorbing of the things around you or is this something that just naturally happens? It's a, it's a symptom of being Jennifer. Okay. Okay. And so you, are you an aspirant model to listeners, to audiences and things like that? Something that they can kind of aspire to be, I guess? You could say that, but it's not an aspiration because of my perfection, because I'm in no way perfect. It's an, an aspiration to, to embrace the imperfection um, I'm a contemporary fool. I'm trying to make us all feel better about our shortcomings and mistakes, failures. You mean in the history of the fool, like a clown or a court jester? Essentially, yes. I'm a, a contempo clown. And it's a little bit more subtle, though, than clowning. Well, I do have a clown costume. Um, but I prefer to use it more as a fashion statement. Mm-hmm. 
it's perhaps it's subtle aesthetically, but um, well, it's a very minimal aesthetic. You think it's minimal? In a way, yeah. I think it's or streamlined. Would Ooh, that make sense? I do like that word. Yeah, not not minimal. I mean, it, it's colorful and it has things, but it's. Uh, I guess it's pretty. The aesthetic is easy on the eyes. It's mm. not particularly garish. It, oh, it's yes. sort of it. It relates to minimalism, maybe in a certain kind of, like I said, like streamlined or like a, a conscious taste of something where you can look and say, oh, these color blocks make sense together. Um, but they're still colorful. It's not It's not like black and white minimalism where there's nothing going on. Right. And, and the music isn't particularly minimal in the sense of like minimal music. Like it's definitely poppy. Right. Well, thank you for seeing my visual presentation from an art standpoint. I appreciate that. <laughs> I do put a lot of time into it. I'm no artist, but visually, but I do have a fondness for fashion and color schemes and a little bit of kind of crafty control over the uh, ensembles that I wear. That's why I make all my own t-shirts because, um, an outfit to suit your mood. Mm -hmm. Um, but Mm, what were we talking about? I guess just kind of, I was just asking about the, the minimalism of, of what mm. you were doing. Um, and wow. I guess, you know, if you were, you know, it, it started with, are you meaning to kind of get people to aspire to it? And then you sort of said, well, you're a contemporary fool. And I was just asking what, what you're kind of reflecting for people or right. what do you hope they get out of it? Um, Best I case think... scenario, somebody leaves the JV lab. Are right. they changed? Yes, please. <laughs> in any particular direction or I'd like them to feel free mm -hmm. freer it's a kind of natural high it's an experiential high I'm just trying to create a new type of reality temporal reality and the magic of performance and the stage is that we manipulate time the feeling our sense of time passing either arrests or slows down or speeds up, but it's not a focal point anymore. It's not about, there's almost a passivity in it, somewhat being a spectator. It's nourishing uh, to take in a show and um, remove the clutter of, you know, your daily woes. So there's a shift that happens there. It's almost like a, a cleansing is the space that it's in, do you feel particularly suited for it? I, I, I really liked the backspace at the Windjammer. I thought that it had a, the doors close, it separates off, it becomes this different space. It didn't feel like, it felt different than going to, say, a venue. Because the, the distinction between what was staged and what wasn't was non-existent. Is that usually how it goes? In the backspace, yes, because there is no stage. There's just one big hardwood floor. Um, the Windjammer Theater, which is that back room when there is a Jennifer uh, production occurring inside of it, is a very special place. Um, I've had a connection to it for... Can you hear the heater? Yeah. Sorry about that. It's wailing. Yeah. Siren song. We can just address it, and that's what's happening right now. That's the sound, which is the heater. Well, I didn't sings. think I didn't think it would come on. It's almost sixty degrees outside. Mm. Why is the heater turning on? Hasn't gotten the memo. No, but you know it's pretty 
It's pretty violent. Um, oh, you know what? Is that the steam coming out? Yeah. Does it ever clank? Mine used oh, to yeah. clank. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes a real fun noise. It usually does that a few times before it kicks on. That's how I know that it's coming. <laughs> um, I made a drum sample out of the, cr- the crank once because oh, it was good. going like, ga, 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 When I first moved here, I uh, sublet a room in Greenpoint from a friend of mine who did not tell me that the heater uh, not only steamed like that for the entire night, but also leaked wildly, Mm. dumped water. Um, And I began to have to sleep with a very large uh, plastic pitcher that I would put under the the part that steamed. Um, And then I would set an alarm for every two hours. And I would have to wake up and empty the pitcher and go put it back repeatedly. And if I ever slept through the alarm... Uh, the floor would just be completely flooded when I would wake up and I would have to lay towels and things like that down. And of course, you know, nobody has a dryer. So then I would have to go to a laundromat and dry all the things. So I really had to pay attention to the alarm. Uh, Sounds like a 1930s tenement yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. I lived in this apartment. I didn't uh, ever speak with any of the other people who lived at it. It was mm. a very weird New York welcome. First apartment? Yeah. I was only living there for two months. It was like my landing spot. Right. And I lived with three or four women um, whose names I don't know. And, it's like a boarding house. And I, yeah, and I never really knew which one was which. I knew their names at the time because of the mail, because the mail would sit on the um, kitchen counter, but I didn't know them at all. We never interacted. Wow. Yeah. That's why people move to New York and are like, this place, this place is so unfriendly. Yeah. <laughs> it gets better. Um, so... Yeah, the backroom space, though, I thought it was one of the more interesting performances that I'd been to in a while, simply because there wasn't this setup where, um, I mean, it was, you know, you knew kind of who was, who was supposed to be performing, who had been Mm -hmm. invited specifically, and then who was just, uh, you know, there in the audience and things like that. But everyone was sort of, I wouldn't even say goaded into participating because people sort of wanted to. There was the part where we went around and we had to identify who we saw in the chair. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know if that's a chair. Those things from the '90s that people would sit the on at their desk. Rolling stool. Yeah, yeah, that thing yes. where you're on your knees, kind of. We'll um, call it a chair for short. A chair, yeah. Um, so everybody jumped in at that, and that was fun because everybody got to try to think of something funny to say or like somebody else. Um, I got to participate during Alex's part, yes, which was did. fun. Um, that was intense and hilarious, and I hope I didn't ham it up too much. Oh no, you were a perfect participant. Okay. I didn't know if I was supposed to be like laughing or acting how I was supposed to do. So I just did the like, oh my God, I'm uncomfortable. I don't, and then I was just like, I like just interviewed Alex. But it seemed like the crowd was happy to see somebody be uncomfortable. Everybody yeah. likes that, right? There tends to be someone that always gets pulled up for someone's performance at these things. And uh, I think I think it's a really hard space to occupy the audience member who gets put onto the stage and they know that they have to play audience member who just got pulled up to the stage. Yeah, it's a you know, role. It's like, you don't want them to be a professional actor. You don't want them to do a good job. You just want them to be the audience member yeah, who proud. got up on the stage. Yeah. So, But then you have to perform that yeah. Yeah, to they, a certain degree. You become aware of it. And everybody kind of understands that role, I think, just through like magic shows or comedy or right. anything else. Like They know that when you get called up, there's a role that you fill. So you, it's like a slotted in performance role that the amateur can play, which is pretty fun. Exactly. And they know exactly how to act. And when they don't do it, it's really frustrating, right? Yeah, that's when you realize 
that there is a difference between the performer and the spectator. There's like a, a, a kind of instinct or, you know, just an ex a veteranship, like an experience level of performers that when you see them next to someone who doesn't know how to do that, who doesn't like live on the stage, then you really understand what the art of performance is. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with um, <clears throat> a consciousness of one's body that I think mm, yes. most of us in our day-to-day -day life aren't um, meant to pay attention to. Right. Like how you stand or sort of where you're where your center of gravity is or how like one arm moves compared to the other one and things like that. And there's right. a, a really, um, it's something that people make fun of in theater actors, <laughs> but something that people don't even notice in like really good performers mm. because they just kind of hold themselves in a way that's very different. And the audience member who gets pulled up sort of has to land right in the middle of total slob and very you know poised kind of person so it's a little bit like they're at attention but their shoulders are a little bit hunched mm. you know or they're a little like they're ready to get whacked with something yes um there's a whole uh chapter in this this improvisation book i read in college um about uh posture um and all of the different sort of statuses you can convey based on how you hold your upper body. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm so glad you brought up body awareness because I would say that's the number one, um, le you know, lesson or step to when you get introduced to the world of, of theater. It's all about body awareness. Mm -hmm. Knowing how you take up space, knowing the lines that your body draws and things like that as you move. And just feeling your body, mm. you know. Like your breath. Your breath, starts mm -hmm. with your breath. And then head-to-toe scans of what's happening in each and every limb and digit. Did you train in that? I did train. Yeah? I'm trained. <laughs> in what? Acting, dance, voice. Um, I did do a little gymnastics when I was nine years old, but I never made it past a round off. I had to skip the somersault line. Um, not a very good roller skater. Usually hold on to the edge of the rink. Mm. Ice skater? Oh, terrible. I, I just don't like the blade much. Really? I can ice skate pretty well. Good for you. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Tanya. Oh, did you see the new movie? I did. I didn't yet. <clears throat> I didn't know much about it. And then all of a sudden it was all anybody could talk about mm. on Twitter. And then I read um, whatever that uh, New York Times profile of Tanya was, where someone met with her. She's uh, Tanya Price now, I guess. She's mm. um, got a family and stuff. But the interview or profile was sort of interesting. It, it wasn't... Um, I would say overly forgiving, but it wasn't damning either. But there was one part that I thought was very weird and petty mm. where the writer took a photo of Tanya's manicure and then made a note to say that she insists, she swears they're not fake. And not only said it in the article, but there's a photo in the article and that's in the caption. That's completely bizarre. They look fine. I mean, they don't look like, I don't know, maybe they're fake nails, but they didn't look fake and who, what? 
Another media jab at Tanya Harding. She just can't catch a break. Well, yeah. Do you, um, I think, and I could be wrong here, but I used to go to the bar in Portland mm. where they found the practice schedule that she wrote down. Um, and I, I, okay, this, is, this was told to me by people who went there. So if I'm wrong, it's because they lied to me or they gave me false information. But it's a bar in Northwest Portland. And when I was in school, our studios were, you know, like a, you could throw a baseball and hit it from our studios. Mm. Uh, and it was called the Dockside Tavern. And it was just this kind of like, not even gnarly, but just like an Oregon dive bar, you know, that was probably disappearing at this point in Portland. Mm. But there were a lot of those when I moved there and just like a fun, like, you know, what somebody would call an old man bar. Mm-hmm. Just like one of those. Kind of like the Windjammer. Yeah. Yeah. I liked the Windjammer when I went in there. <laughs> it was pretty cool. But yeah, very much that vibe. But yeah, I was there one time with somebody that said, you know, this is the bar, the dumpster outside of which the note that Tanya Harding wrote was found. And I was like, oh my God, I'm in a little piece of history. And I have, uh, I have a weird relationship with the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan story. Not weird, but like a very, I remember it distinctly, um, not just because it was on TV, but because my sisters were both figure skaters at the time. And we were like an ice skating household. And so that was a big deal that year. Was that the 94 Olympics? Lillehammer, I think. The whole couple of years leading up to that, like I knew who Tanya Harding was, Christy Yamaguchi, Nancy Kerrigan, like these were all people who were discussed in our home. And so when this thing happened, it was about, I mean, that just, my sisters were, I'm probably projecting here, but I feel like they were really excited that the sport that they liked that usually wasn't cool, all of a sudden was all anybody could talk about was figure skating. Yeah. I mean, in a way, Tanya Harding put it on the map. Oh yeah. I think as a young woman, uh, a lot of young girls are are drawn to figure skating because we see ourselves represented to a degree. Yep. But it's a serious sport, you know. There's an ath- the athleticism gives it credence and it's an legitimacy. Insanely difficult sport. Mm-hmm. Like unreal. I, I can't. It's aggressive dance. Yeah, but like you could break your skull open right. at any time, or break any bone in your body if you screw up, or cut your hand off if you fell really weird. Oh God. Yeah, I just think that Tanya is. Tanya is a punk. Yeah. And I mean that in the best of ways. Yeah. Do you empathize with it? Do you think that she was involved in the attack? I she mean, swears that she wasn't is kind of the thing. Yeah. Right? That's what the movie was about. Was she just, she after the fact, if I'm understanding it correctly, she just wasn't as forthcoming as she should have been afterwards. Right. So if the movie, if I, Tanya is, I mean, I, Tanya is based on interviews with all of the people involved. So if that's a fair representation, and this is, I mean, this is the official story from the people accused of perpetrating it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't supposed to be a crowbar hit. It wasn't supposed to be violent at all. It was just supposed to be a few menacing letters uh-huh. sent to Nancy. Oh, she so wanted that, that to happen, To bully right? her out of practicing at the rink. It was Jeff Galuli's, you know, thick-headed idea because he was bored and had no, like, stimulation of his own, you know? He was just sort of living in her shadow of determination. Yeah. So he comes up with this harebrained idea. And I think she was like, yeah, sure, if you want to, whatever. Like, get off my back. Like, seems harmless enough. But then his ghoulish uh, little... His galoolish. Yeah. I guess that's why I said ghoulish. His, like, you know, little um, henchman uh, friend um, behind his back wound up coming up with this sort of evil 
master plan. Okay, so the chain, the, the chain is Tanya Harding's ex husband is not Jeff Galuli, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is Jeff Galuli? Is Jeff Galuli? Yeah. Oh, and then he they're the, still together. No, in this scenario. Oh, okay, yeah. And then uh, another person is yeah. the person who actually did it. Yeah. Made well, it's actually even more more degrees removed. But people here have probably seen I Tanya at this point. Well, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I was on vacation. <laughs> They didn't have it in the Southwest. Nobody knows what figure skating is. So it's not <laughs> sure, as big of like a deal. Ice? <laughs> ice? Um, well, that's pretty is there wild. Any chocolate in this? There's probably one Toblerone left. You're welcome to it if you'd like. There's also some split it. There's dark two. chocolate with uh, pink Himalayan salt wow. on it, I believe, over there if you'd like some. Chocolate is my favorite and only food. Um, what was I going to say about Tanya? Oh, that, that was sort of that. Was Is there video? of that or do i just think there's video of, of the that? crowbar moment yeah. oh yeah Cut yeah on national television okay it's like the new zapruder film which is the kennedy assassination mm. <laughs> yeah i'm caught on tape mm, maybe it's the surveillance of it too it's actually amazing that that moment was caught on tape now it's not amazing when things are caught on tape because everybody's taping everything all the time right, it's not like that for granted it's not that wild but there's something in, was it in, did it happen in 93 since the Winter Olympics would have been early 94? They also didn't, why didn't they do it closer to the thing? Didn't she heal? Nancy Kerrigan healed and yeah. skated in the Olympics, right? But didn't she win the silver? Yeah. And didn't some people her. perceive that that was the international judges Spires. sort of saying to the U.S., like, keep your, keep your shit out of the spotlight. This is a... This is a very fancy sport, and you heathens are making it look like trash. I think so. I mean, the movie does... Did Oksana Bayul win? Mm. Or is she later? I think she's a little later. She was so young. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- they do portray the figure skating, what do they call it, league, as being quite bourgeois. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, they turn their noses up at Tanya. She couldn't catch a break because her mom she was tacky. Her, yeah, her mom sewed her costumes, right? And harsh, and she played, you know, metal music for mm-hmm. her soundtracks, for her routines. And she was kind of like muscular. A little more squat maybe than the other lanky ballerina-esque. They said in the article that I read that she put, she skated. They went and saw her skate and she put stirrups were black leggings and she put the black stirrups over the skates to elongate the lines of her legs and it didn't cut the stirrup i didn't really uh, uh, the okay i was wondering about that because there was a photo of it and i assume it must have velcro or something is it underneath the blade or in that gap between between, the top of the blade and the bottom of the boot Yep, it goes through there (sighs) that's incredible there must be uh it must snap or have velcro or something Mm -hmm. yeah it 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 took me a while when i was looking at it to figure out how somebody it's like that. that trick where someone removes their underwear without taking their pants off and you're like how did they how do you can people do that the chippendales and things like that oh the yes do you they remember zoolander <laughs> do you remember the oh they did do that in zoolander do you remember the chippendales sketch from saturday night live yeah. with patrick swayze and chris farley yes that might be one of the funniest things <laughs> physically visually that I've ever seen in my life and yeah. probably has had a I've had an unconscious influence from it 
for probably my entire life. We just Claire and I just watched Tommy Boy the other day. Mm. It was on TV at if a I hotel may. that we were staying mm. at, and fat guy <laughs> in little coat. I mean, obviously the. Uh, that the entire underlining tone of half of the jokes is that they're like you're gay mm, that hasn't so aged, that hasn't aged well um right. neither has we also noticed this very particular thing where right before anything bad happened i forgot about this in the 90s mm. in the moment before someone is struck in a slapstick moment mm-hmm. by like a projectile or something mm-hmm. they always there's a millisecond where they go like not good and then they get <laughs> nailed like this happened with like four different characters in that movie. Rob Lowe did it. David Spade did it. Like I swear to God, Chris Farley did it. But it was like this recurring thing, and it was such a '90s thing of humor that was that kind of like uh, what was called alt comedy at the time. Mm-hmm. Like just that kind of like smarmy, like reality bites attitude that was just like, well, right. here we go, and then you get hit in the head or something. Like you can't even be. You're so jaded as a Gen Xer right. that you can't be bothered to get out of the way. It's of, sort of an amalgam of like Hanna-Barbera cartoons. <laughs> like, like Looney Tunes. Wait, sort do you of. know about the toes? The yeah, that's yeah, what I was I trying about to that. Yeah, I think about that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that... Uh, <clears throat> and like Janine Garofalo. Janine Garofalo, and then like post Borscht Belt stand up. That's like, am I right? Am yeah. I right? You know? That kind of wink. And now that's morphed into um, just the you, you look at the camera and you do the gym from the office. The... Oh my God. You just did such a good impression of it, too. People can't see what I'm doing, but I've been wanting to do that. It's the gym face. We all know it. It's just, yeah, just like. It's not like, you I don't even know what that's called you with that. your lips. Yeah, people know what it is. And you sometimes you just kind of raise your eyebrows and it's just like a, a this or that. But. It's basically an, a, the like human embodied version of the shrug emoji. Yeah, which I programmed into my phone. You have? If I type Show in, if I type in I-D-E-K, like I don't even know, Oh. it does shruggy. Okay, after this recording, we're going to do that on my phone, too. Because yeah. I just go to, I open up my browser, I type oh, you in go copy, SHR, paste it? and mm-hmm. then it goes to shrugemoji.com. It, it knows, yeah. And then you copy-paste. Well, the problem is is that it doesn't read it as um, a word in the way that if you put, like, um, ACDC, let's say. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't line break in the middle of that because it reads it, even if it doesn't know ACDC, is it reads it as, like, a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shruggy is not read as a word because it's special characters and punctuation. Right. So oftentimes, Shruggy's hand will end up, his left hand will end up on the next line. And no. it just kind of ruins it. It looks like it shit. It really does. Yeah. So is there a way to manually correct that? Or is that the... F- you, maybe fun? maybe I could take an extra step and like actually teach my phone that word with like a definition. And then it would recognize it. But I don't use it enough that that has become... It's just occasionally I'll be like, oh, damn. But you know what my phone does do now? What? I got a new phone. Uh, I had this, my phone, like the glass was falling out in my pocket. I, it was really bad. <laughs> so I, I got a new phone. Uh, I got a really fancy phone. Mm. I got the one that doesn't have a button. Oh, my God. Yeah. What it, does it have? You just flick at the thumb. Ugh. Opens it up. Okay. But trying to <clears throat> it, was like, to that it was like five extra dollars mm. a month versus what i would pay to get any other phone so mm-hmm. i was like fine i'll do this one um but the phone thinks you know i did the cloud transferred the stuff over the phone yeah. thinks that any word that i've ever capitalized that the default of that word is that word capitalized it's like mm. stuff 
I must have used stuff as a proper noun in a title of something at some point in the however many years that I've used iPhones. Or it was a typo even. Something like that, right? And now I have to manually undo it. And I know I know somebody's listening to this is like, you know, you can just go into your settings and change it. Like I know that, but it happens <laughs> so infrequently that it doesn't Not motivate it. me to go into my settings and change that one word or whatever. But this is the kind of mental clutter that, that abounds these days. Yeah. Uh, I get a notification at least twice a day that my I, iCloud storage is full. Yeah. I never asked them to store anything on my iCloud. I just fucking, you know what I did? I paid the money to make it go away. Uh, that's what they want you to do. I know, but you know what happened after I did that? When I got a new phone, all I did was just turn them both on with Wi-Fi and everything moved on to my other phone. Hmm. So it was, a, I mean, it's a racket, but... I'm not out here advocating for the cloud, but I am saying that it did make that a little bit easier and it made that fucking thing go away and it cost like 99 cents or something. Mm. So I did do that. Really selling it. Yeah, really selling it. You should, you got to get the cloud. I do love a good promo. I'm living. very, very uh, vulnerable to good promo. Well, you have done some professional promotional work. So, I have. Yeah. Can you do any of it right now? Or is that too tall an order? Um, it sure. could be annoying. I feel like when people say, tell me a joke, you do comedy, it's annoying. But this is exactly the context in which I would do a voiceover, so it makes perfect sense. Okay. What do you want to hear? Um, I know you did a you did a Swiffer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you do the Swiffer? <clears throat> if you got a life, you got a Swiffer. <laughs> <laughs> Was that, Hit me with another. That's the entirety of it? Yep. Well, I don't know what other work you've done, and I don't want to just throw a product at you. That's my day you. job. Um, uh, how about, okay, you might get a little loud. You're okay. going to have to check the mixer. Yeah, your compression, um, here, I'll turn your compression up all the way. That way it won't blast you. Okay, here, I'll bring you down a little bit for this. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? The 2014 MTV Video Music Awards, live at nine, only on MTV. Oh my God. <laughs> Like, what was the directive that you got to do that? You energy, sound, energy, oh, energy. Because you sound, I can't tell if you're supposed to be a little kid or like just a super fucking excited woman who's like 24. Yeah, around that. I think it wasn't, I didn't get the exact proper nasal level and timbre. The, the MTV video music, you know, it's like that. <laughs> it's And also I did like, on the next, Teen Mom 2. Oh yeah, that's right? good. Like, tonight on the 10 spot. <laughs> How did you discover that you had um, an affinity for that? Or did, would, did someone hear you talking on the phone on the street and come up to you? Like people in New York are like, I just moved here and someone approached me on the street and asked me to model. Right. How, do you, how do you know that you have the voice for, for that? I heard you on the phone with your mother and I couldn't help but notice. <clears throat> Kid, you got a future. But there are so many people whose um, voices are suited for... Uh, whether it's like anchor news people, and I know they train, and I know stuff like that. But there's like right. there's a I always wanted to go to one of those anchor woman boot camps. But there's kind of like a there's like a magic point in the whatever like the spectrum of how somebody's voice can sound that some people's are just very uh, people like to listen to them. Right. Yeah. You don't even have to have a voice that people like to listen to. You just have to be good at delivering the copy, the okay. script. You know, the text of the advertisement. What was the first copy. one you did? The first one. Oh, the first one I did was the elevator voice for City Hall in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Oh, the Texas of Canada. Is that what they call it? Have you ever been to the airport there? No. My God. 
it's like everyone cowboy wears cowboy hats. hats. <gasps> yeah. Well, they're like the, they're, they're all the oh. cattle ranches and all the oil. I can't wait to go. They never sent me a copy, so I have to go ride the elevator myself. Oh, Calgary's a shithole. Hmm. Well, I'm glad to, re- proud asked- to represent <laughs> no, City sorry. Hall of Calgary <laughs> going up. Oh, you didn't have to do like a going. You didn't have, you didn't. You know, my first voiceover teacher asked me where I was from because she detected a Canadian accent in my O's. Really? It's really just this strange valley girl thing I picked up once, but I do have Canadian ancestors migrated from Scotland. Oh, mine went through Canada from Ireland. Huh, so, similar. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I grew up north of Toronto, so my O's can get... Uh, usually after, I have to have a couple drinks. You're Canadian? No, I'm from northern Michigan. Okay. But I grew up further, like... I see. Like the same parallel that, like, Montreal is on. Oh. Um, I mean, Montreal's a little north, but north of much of the population of Canada. And that has seeped its way. I mean, it's all the... The Michigan one is in between the Fargo accent mm-hmm. and the kind of stereotypical Canadian accent that people do. It's, it's right in a, right in a pocket around there. It's not as, it's not as nasally as Chicago. Like Chicago is very, people are mad there cause it's so cold. Mm. People are a little more laid back and, uh, in Northern Michigan, but it's a, it's a particular thing. And I, I forget that I can do it, which is what's exciting. Cause I can't, I can't genuinely do other accents. You know so what I mean? So it's a choice. I'm, I don't think I do it and I don't have to actively do it now, but I did when I was in my early 20s. I had to try to have, I tried to speak without regional dialect. You actively did not do it. Yeah. I avoided doing it and tried to speak in, um. That's what happens in college, right? Yeah. Because I went to college and everybody asked me if I was from Canada. And I was like, no. It wouldn't be such a bad thing. No, it wouldn't be. Um. It's not true. But that was, well. I moved to Arizona right after 9-11. Mm. So I probably should have said I was from Canada. Yeah, I'm not from your shitty mm. warmongering country. But that would make you special. Yeah, it would make me special. <laughs> a Canadian. Why'd you join the Reds? A Canadian in Tempe. That would be <laughs> a good like show. Sounds a, like a novel yeah. that I'd like to read. <laughs> um, well, so after the, after the 21st, when this comes out... Um, Obviously, you've got the next Jennifer Vanilla show is going to be the first Tuesday of February. February 6th. February 6th at the Windjammer. Um, Still planning or is there anything to reveal or is it kind of under? It's underway. Um, I really do have to go show by show because they take so much focus in the three to four weeks leading up to it. And uh, I'm, I'm... I've got some people lined up. Uh, the theme is to be determined based on the rest of the guests that can that confirm because uh, I don't make plans until I know who's going to be on the show. Yeah. I have vague ideas. I book with that vague idea in mind. But then once the group comes together, then I start rolling. Yeah. You've had, uh, through various permutations of Jennifer Vanilla, uh, many of the friends of the podcast have performed with you, alongside you, at your shows, things like that. And completely inadvertently, and just based on scheduling, I did this trifecta of Alex Tatarski, Sarah Sherman, (gasps) and then you. Oh, wow. What a a nice power trio, right? That's great. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have Sarah Sherman on the show. 
She's coming point. soon. She is? Yes. Ooh. I'll tell you off, Mike. Yes. Um, cool. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. Talking about all kinds of things, letting me know some insider info about I, Tanya that I did not know. Oh. I do yes. have to watch that movie. Like I said, it was a very... Be sure to watch it. It was a very important part of my life, and we were a special K household, which meant <laughs> that there were a lot of figure skaters on the boxes. Um, to everybody out there, Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.